Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Candace Nelson. You may know her from baking competition shows such as Cupcake Wars and Sugar Rush, or perhaps you've had the pleasure of enjoying one of Candace Nelson's signature sprinkles cupcakes that made her famous. But Candace is much more than a pastry chef. She's an entrepreneur, an author, an angel investor, and more. And now she details the best ways to turn your passion into profit with her new book, Sweet Success. Candace's story of leaving behind banking and tech to reconnect with her childhood love of baking is sure to strike a chord with those who feel burnt out, uninspired, or just unsure of which direction to take. Candace is living proof that the thing you love can not only be your career, it can become your empire and your legacy. Take a listen. Candace, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk today. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. I listen to it all the time. And now I get to be on the other side of it. I know. Well, I'm excited to talk about so many things, but we have to go, we have to go back to your pastry chef days and your your beginnings. So I would love to hear, like, was being a pastry chef or baking, was that something that was always of interest to you? So I grew up baking with my mom. Some of my fondest childhood memories were in the kitchen, baking with my mom from her tattered copy of The Joy of Cooking. And we baked all these great classic American desserts like Rice Krispie treats and brownies and, you know, sheet cakes and, of course, chocolate chip cookies. And we did that because I was living overseas. We were actually living on the island of Sumatra in Indonesia for some of my you know, grade school and childhood. And it was a way for me to not only, you know, spend time with my mom, but it was a way for me to connect with my homeland, which I really had quite a longing for. You know, I was just like a grade school kid who missed her friends at home and, and felt a little out of sorts. And so that was a way that I could ground myself and, and, and feel that connection to home. You know, this were obviously pre-internet days. So letters took, you know, to pen pals took two weeks and you'd have to wait two weeks, uh, another two weeks to hear back from them. So it was, it was one thing that gave me solace and connection, but you know, I did sort of reconnect with my love of baking until much later in my life. It was after college and after a stint in investment banking and then at an internet company that, you know, the dot-com bust happened. And I was out of a job and happened to be engaged and just sort of threw myself into planning my wedding. And then on my husband, Charles, and my honeymoon, sort of the second blow happened, which was 9-11. We'd had this beautiful honeymoon in the south of France. And of course, with my passion for pastry, I'd eaten every croissant and brioche and, you know, tart in the, in the country and was feeling just so joyful and buoyed. And then all of a sudden, everything was very dark and bleak in the wake of 9-11. And really was at a point in my life where I was kind of about to move on to the next expected thing of me, which probably would have been business school and continue on that, you know, trajectory. But 9-11 left me with some time to sort of do some soul searching. And I realized that I wanted to 
pursue something with a little bit more joy and purpose, which had really been lacking in my previous jobs. And, you know, I, San Francisco is such an incredible food city and my love for food had really been reawakened. And there happened to be this pastry school just down the street from me, down the hill, really in Knob Hill. And it was this sweet pastry school. There was like an organic garden in the back and there was sunlight flooding in and it was really intimate. And I thought, what the heck? I'm going to go to pastry school instead of going to business school and, and see if I like it as much as I do as a hobby, you know, having to get up and do it every day. And I realized I loved it. I loved it so much. It was just like, it fed my soul. It was so creative. I loved, you know, working with chocolate and creating these delicious things that I would then bring back to my new husband and watch him devour them. And it just like, it really gave me a lot of joy. So that, that was sort of the beginning of my journey and, and how I started marching towards opening the world's first cupcake bakery. So what really blows my mind is before you launched Sprinkles, there wasn't this worldwide phenomenon around cupcakes. And like every week, I feel like it's like, now it's ice cream, now it's slime, donuts. But <laughs> before, before you did it, you know, the world was just like either baking cupcakes at home probably or getting mm-hmm. them at the grocery store. So when you had the idea for Sprinkles, did you know that it was something that was going to be like a world-changing occurrence? Or did you just say, I want to open up a small store and see what happens? Because before you answer that, like, I secretly want to open up a sandwich shop, mm. but I don't know that that's going to be a worldwide phenomenon the way that uh, Sprinkles Sprinkles is. Well, there are there are pros and cons to the whole worldwide phenomenon thing, of course. but. No, I think when I graduated pastry school, I was just so excited to get to work. I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and marry this idea of being creative, but also bringing in my business side. And I initially started with special occasion cakes. You know, while I had been planning my wedding, I realized that my favorite part of planning my wedding was planning my wedding cake, going and doing the wedding cake tastings. And I would spend hours pouring over, you know, Martha Stewart weddings, magazines. And one of the things I noticed was that there was a new trend in wedding cakes and it was the cupcake tower. And I thought that was so fun. I ultimately opted for a more traditional tiered wedding cake, but it sort of wormed its way into my subconscious. And so while I was making these very fussy special occasion cakes and realizing that it probably wasn't really great business because, you know, someone had told me in my past that great business is, is producing something that people can buy or need every day, right? And a special occasion cake is by its nature reserved for those special occasions, anniversaries, birthdays, that sort of thing. And so I thought, gosh, I'd really love to do something creative, just like these special occasion cakes, but, but something that people could conceivably eat on a daily basis. And I started thinking about cupcakes. And what I loved about cupcakes were that they're so nostalgic. Everybody has these warm, happy feelings about cupcakes because in America, we all grew up with them. You know, whether it was hostess cupcakes or your mom baked cupcakes, you had them at your birthday party, you had them in your lunchbox. But, and we all loved them, but we didn't really love them as we grew up because they were still, they were 
reserved for kids. You found them in the super, it's hard to imagine now, but back then you found them in the supermarket bakery. They're sort of waxy, garishly colored sprinkles, frosting made with tons of shortening. You know, the decorations were plastic cupcake picks and they were packaged in plastic clamshells. So they really were just a very unsophisticated treat, but imbued with this sort of warm halo because they were so nostalgic. And I just thought I could really elevate the cupcake. I could take the special ingredients and the care and the artfulness that I'm using for these cakes and and put them, funnel all of that into this treat that everyone loves and could eat on a daily basis. And so that was the idea behind sprinkles. And I thought it would be, I thought it could be successful. And I thought there certainly could be a market in every city across America for sprinkles, but I had no idea the velocity with which it would take off. So when that velocity happened, I think I read you sold 2,000 cupcakes your first week opening. Mm-hmm. What went through your head? Well, what <laughs> went through my head was kind of like, oh, shit, because... <laughs> because I don't when- have that much flour available. <laughs> Exactly. The only yeah. reason we sold 2,000 cupcakes and not 10,000 cupcakes is because we were really only prepared to sell about 500 cupcakes. Wow. Prior to opening, we were doing something new. It was the world's first cupcake bakery. I had My husband and I had moved down to LA to open it where people say, you know, people in LA don't eat things like cupcakes. And on top of that, it was a time when the South Beach diet was on the bestsellers list. Everyone, by the way, including myself, was on a low-carb diet. But here's the thing. I would eat you know, my steak and my vegetables and drink my water so that I could have a cookie afterwards. And mm-hmm. I figured there were other people out there like me. Not to mention, as I drove around LA, I sure noticed a whole lot of burger joints and donut shops. So I was like, Somebody out there is lying to me because not everybody in LA is drinking green juice. But my point is, everybody thought that our idea was a terrible one, foolish, like throwing money to the wind. And so, you know, we were still optimistic. My husband and I believed in our idea, but obviously tempered by the fact that everyone else seemed to think it was a bad idea. I, you know, the day before opening, baked through the night. I, baked enough cupcakes to stock my display case and have more in the back. And I thought, okay, we've got, you know, one thing on our side, we have daily candy, which I'm sure you remember that incredible email newsletter that went out every day in LA and, you know, other cities around the country saying what was hot and new in town that day. And that was going out on our opening day. And I knew the power of daily candy because I was like a fanatic. I, I followed daily candy every day and I loved it. So we knew some people would show up and I figured, okay, if we have a few hundred cupcakes, we'll be set. You know, people will come in, they'll buy one, they'll buy two. Well, people came in and they were buying one and two dozen. And within a few hours of opening day, our beautiful line of customers had turned into an angry mob because the display case was dry and I was sweating in the back baking cupcakes as furiously as I could, but it didn't matter. I mean, I had these tiny, you know, mixers that the size that you probably have in your home kitchen, Rebecca. And it's like the recipes I was working with only yielded two dozen. And you can't, you know, 
increase and scale that supply and those recipes and that equipment overnight. So for weeks on end, we were dealing with really unhappy customers. I mean, this, you know, people in LA are not used to being told, I know that you drove across town and parked and you want two dozen, but today you can only buy one. It's a blessing and a curse, right? Because exactly. the piece, like they need to have it again, but they also hate you. Yeah. And the thing is, I was mortified, of course, because, you know, for me, this was business was about hospitality and baking and food to me really is about giving and giving joy and and being generous. And I, you know, probably at the end of the day, I'm a people pleaser and I really wanted my customers to be happy. And they were all really mad at me. (laughs) And that was, that was hard for me to handle. But in retrospect, I do think that the fact that all of these people were being told that they couldn't have a cupcake, you know, the scarcity really did end up fueling even more demand. And it became sort of this, this thing where people around LA were like, what do you mean you, you, you tried to get a cupcake and they were sold out? It just really appealed to people's you know, imagination and their curiosity. And so more people came. <laughs> you know, I think there needs to be a hall of fame for the companies that came out of Daily Candy because that's my origin story. Really? And the Yeah. The power, it was 2005 and the article was called The Catwalk of Shame. And that was <laughs> the morning after bag. And I wish something existed today that had that power, like a singular thing that had that holy shit. I mean, maybe Kate Middleton wearing, eating a sprinkles cupcake and wearing a Rebecca Minkoff bag would do that. But <laughs> Let's do that. Can we make that happen? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so convincing, yeah, maybe it wasn't convincing, but did your husband say to you, we're crazy, we're leaving San Francisco, we're leaving our business, we're going to go open a cupcake shop? You know, I give Charles a lot of credit and, you know, we have now been married for coming on 21 years. We have two sons together and we actually met working. So as much as my friends scratch their heads and say, Candace, I don't know how you guys do it. I mean, I knew I could work with him because that's how I initially met him. We met at the investment bank. We didn't date until later, but our initial relationship, late nights, you know, crunching numbers and somehow getting through it with a good dose of humor. So Charles he has an entrepreneurial spirit for sure. He comes from an entrepreneurial family. He had his MBA and he certainly raised a lot of eyebrows amongst his business school friends when he told them he was going to stop working in finance to open a cupcake shop with his wife. But I give him (laughs) so much credit because he did it and he didn't care what people thought. And he was my delivery driver driving cupcakes around town for months and months and months. And he had the best time with it. So Yes, I think there were probably moments where certainly his friends, his family, my family were all wondering what the hell we were doing. He was always, he stayed true. Wow, that's amazing. So a lot of your innovation with Sprinkles came from personal experiences, whether you had a late night pregnancy craving and opened (laughs) up, you know, the cupcake ATM or the Sprinkles mobile would you say that that innovation helped drive your growth or or maybe it didn't drive growth but it gave you attention nationwide and that you know has its own value yeah well thank you first of all for for bringing up the innovation i do really consider the success of sprinkles to be based on innovation 
Um, and innovation, you know, in its simplest form is really just doing something different uh, or better. And that's what we were doing with the bakery industry. Um, you know, we, we, we made a lot of innovation just from the standpoint of innovating on the cupcake itself, you know, taking an old fashioned classic and making it more modern, more sophisticated innovation in terms of trademarking the modern dot, the decoration we used on top of our cupcakes. This isn't something that people were typically thinking about when they entered baking industry, you know, intellectual property. But for me, coming from the world of investment banking and technology where IP is so important, you know, I thought I am about to put all of my life savings in a business that is completely, it's not really defensible. I mean, anyone in America can make a cupcake. How am I going to defend my business? Like, what is my moat going to be? Right? There really wasn't one. And so I thought, I really need to, first of all, lean into brand, but I need to protect something, anything that I can. And so this modern dot decoration, which is, you know, almost looks like a bullseye, it's like two corresponding dot decorations on top of the cupcake, was a fun modern update on the classic sprinkle. But it also became just so associated with our cupcakes that we were able to trademark it. So we had that one, you know, piece of defensible IP. So that was innovation as well. And then just the the store, the whole customer experience. From the moment you walked into the store, you realized, you know, you may not have noticed all the details, but you knew that this was a new experience. Like this was not your average bakery or cupcake shop. I mean, even we recreated the traditional bakery display case. When you walked in, the cupcakes were eye level and the trays that they sat in were tilted so that you could see you were faced with the prettiest part of the cupcake, you know, the frosting and the decorations. And then of course, you know, the cupcake ATM, as you mentioned, I mean, that was, you know, that came to me in a pregnancy craving and we launched that in 2012, which, you know, now in the post-pandemic world, like looking back on it, that was, that was pretty prescient, you know, this contactless, cupcake delivery system that we came out with. And I do believe that all has to do with innovation. It's about looking at something in a different way. So you start growing, you are up to, well, now you have 22 locations. I'm not sure how much you had before you decided to sell, but what, with that growth and with that attention, you know, what made you say, okay, now's the time, you know, I launched this in 2005. I've been doing this for nine years. It's time to let go. And how did you feel? Was it like one of those good and bads or just Mm -hmm. total elation Mm. as you decided to let it go? Well, again, you know, coming from the world of investment banking, I was sort of trained to believe that that's what you did. You started, you built, you scaled and you sold. And that was the dream, right? And so mm-hmm. I was programmed that way. I think the reason that the timing happened the way it did also was because I became a mom. And, you know, running a retail operation of any sort, national retail operation involves being boots on the ground. It's not a tech company. And mm-hmm. so my husband and I spent a lot of time. I mean, when we opened our Dallas store, which is our third store, I was nine months pregnant with my first son. We moved there for three months. We rented an apartment. We, we lived in Dallas. We were Dallas residents. And that's how we approached opening all of our stores. It was really important for us to hire everyone, train everyone so that our company culture, which was really strong, could survive, you know, however many thousands of miles away it was from the original location. So, 
you know, once I had my first child, and it's so funny because I woke up after having Charlie and I looked around and I thought, wow, I have no friends. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have anyone to call to ask, you know, why my child hates tummy time or what mommy and me I should go to. And so it was just sort of a wake up call to the fact that I had been so consumed with this business and I loved it. It was my first child, but that, you know, life for me was expanding and I needed to be part of my community in other ways. And, you know, my childhood growing up, I moved around every two years. That was really hard for me. You know, there were benefits to it, obviously. And, uh, but I wanted something different for my children and I didn't want to be on the road all the time. I wanted to have that consistency with them. It was really important for me. So with being a mom, having children, it just started to get harder. And then the creativity was missing a little for me. It became such an operations play. And I really like that startup part of the business. I really thrive in that like ideation, conceptualization stage. And, you know, when the company's really small, I love that. I thrive on that. I loved my business still, but it just had become a different operational challenge. And I think part of being a founder is knowing when to pass the torch, right? And I thought, wow, there are other serious operators out there who can probably do a better job of this than I can. But back to my point about Charles and I working really well together, I will say we were we were really divided on this. I thought it was the right time to sell. He was like cupcake world domination. He was not ready at all. And we had to have a really serious family meeting. His brother, Bobby, was the CFO of Sprinkles. And his father, he'd been a banker and did some financial or some business strategic consulting. So he would kind of weigh in on our business from time to time. And ultimately it was three to one. Like Bobby, Chuck, Charles's dad, and I said, we think it's the right thing for our family, for us and for the business to find a new, you know, a new operator, a new owner to pass the torch. And it took Charles some time to get his head around that. But ultimately he was, (laughs) he came around. I find it to be very similar to gambling. When do you sell? When do you not? You know, we had an opportunity many, many years ago that had I known what I know now would have been the time to do it, you know? And then it was like, nope, we're holding on because it's just going to get up, go up from here. And little did you know that after that up, there was a deep downhill and then we had to build back up again. So I'm glad that you did it at the time you did because it sounds like it was the right time. It was the right time, but I will say that I personally, even though it was what I wanted, Rebecca, was really, I was not prepared for how I would feel afterwards. I didn't realize, even though I knew that I was associated with my business, I mean, was called Mrs. Sprinkles for God's sake, but <laughs> but I, I I thought I was prepared for it. I thought I was a big girl. I thought I could separate my identity from the business I had created. And let me tell you what, it was a journey. It really was. I felt like the I don't know the wind in my sails was missing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it totally. took me a while to figure it out. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know what my advice would be for others, but I think just know maybe maybe plan better for that you know, pl- have, have a plan, whether it's just going on a nice long vacation or, you know, getting into angel investing right away 
or having a new business idea you want to hop right into, all of those are okay. Spending time with family, any of them are okay. But just thinking that you're selling your business and you're going to be happy and everything's going to be great, it's not exactly how it goes because as an entrepreneur, so much of the joy is in the striving. Mm -hmm. It's true. I think people think, oh, when the big payday comes or or the acquisition happens then. But I think I've learned at least the journey, the journey and the starting and the building is, is the fun part and is the reward. Yeah, totally agree. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So let's talk about Pizzana before we talk about your book, because I didn't know that was you. This was 2019. We had our big female founder collective event and my head of PR at the time was like, let's go to Pizzana. And we went there and I was like, holy fuck, (laughs) this is the most amazing you know, I'm gluten-free and it's hard to find anything that tastes good. And it was just, it was all delicious. Aww. I go there by myself when I'm in LA. I think I had DM do like, I'm here alone eating. The well, loser by the way, I will because go I need with to you eat your, I need your food. <laughs> so what gave you, like, that's a very big departure from Cupcake. So what gave you that idea to, to you know, co-found it and launch it? And, and is it just as fun the second time around? <laughs> Well, I'm laughing at your reaction, the holy crap, you know, reaction to the pizza, because that's really how it began for me. I, after sprinkles, Charles and I were (laughs) completely exhausted and we actually had a conversation where we said, I don't think we're, we're going to go back into the food business. So it really came as a surprise. I mean, I was at a party, a pizza party at my friend, Chris O'Donnell's house, who, if you don't know, he's a well-known actor. And he had just installed this great wood-burning pizza oven, and he was having the time of his life entertaining people on a weekly basis with this chef he had found who had just immigrated from Naples, Italy. And I took one bite of this pizza, and I literally was like, hold on a moment. I think I probably left mid-conversation with such a bad party guest. (laughs) I was like, I got to find out who made this pizza. So I go and I seek out the chef, 
and I meet Daniele Uditi, who's our now, you know, executive chef at Pizzana. And he happened to be a Sprinkles fan. So here we were two, you know, people who deal in dough, right? Different types of dough. And we had this sort of mutual admiration going on. And we talked all night and I heard about how he came to the States with literally like, it's the American dream story. He came to the States with $200 in his pocket and had packaged his grandmother's 60-year-old starter, hoping that customs wouldn't find it, which is still the basis for all of our pizza dough. And he said, I just have this dream. I want to open a restaurant. And I couldn't help myself. It was like I was possessed by the pizza. It was a pizza possession. I was like, I would love to do that with you. I'll open your restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We got to do that. I could see it. Like it just, I could see it. I could see the brand taking place. I could see all my friends from Brentwood eating there. I just like, I could, I could just visualize it. And so that ship had sailed and I was like, okay, I guess this is my next thing. And yes, I'm much more of a supporting role in that I'm not, you know, people have your same reaction. Oh, I didn't know Candace was involved in this, very much involved in it, but I'm not the face of it. And I love actually being in a role that is sort of behind the camera now because I'm sort of helping Daniele's star to shine. I mean, I co-created a show that he has coming out on Hulu where he's going to be a pizza judge. It's called Best in Dough. It comes out in September. And, you know, it's really fun. Now, I will say that the desserts on the menu were created by me. So I do yes. still have a hand in the making of the food, but the pizza is, is all Daniele. It is delicious. And thank you for shouting out our, our gluten-free dough because it, it is really remarkable. Oh, it's, it's so remarkable. It's my favorite. So you're, you're just a little busy. You have the restaurant. You're an author of a best-selling book already. You have several TV shows that you've either judged or appeared on. I know a lot of people see busy women like us and they're like, how the fuck does she do all that? <laughs> so let's break it down. Let's, let's get into like, who's your team and how do you do this? Oh, team. It's all about the team. Team at work and team at home. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I couldn't do it without my incredible home team. Got a great nanny and she is incredible. She is my right hand. She also acts as an assistant to me. She sometimes is, you know, I've taught her to bake. Uh, She's now, you know, cooks for our family. I mean, she is, she is all in. She's like my protege and assistant in all walks of life. So I, I just am very grateful for Leah. And then of course, our incredible team at Pizzana, you know, our, our work at Charles and I come from, you know, as much as everyone talks about mental health and wellness. And, and I know it's so important. We do come from a world where it's all about the grind. And we've had to kind of be cognizant of that, but we definitely have a work ethic and a startup ethic where it's like, doesn't matter what time it is, the job needs to get done. And we have been so fortunate to surround ourselves with people who feel that same way and have that same pride of ownership in the business. So yeah, it's all about the team. But to those people who are wondering about my upcoming book, it's so funny because my first book was the Sprinkles Baking Book. And it was obviously, you know, a dessert cookbook. And so when I tell people I've written a book, they're like, oh, I can't wait for all those recipes. And I'm like, well, I hope you're not going to be disappointed (laughs) 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 because there are no recipes in my new book, although it's called Sweet Success and it plays on, you know, my experience building sprinkles. And I use a lot of fun baking metaphors. It's really a guide to entrepreneurship. And, you know, inspired by the fact that 
there are, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, so many people who've left unfulfilling jobs and they're really trying to find professional purpose. So this book is really about helping you navigate what's next. And, you know, whether you uh, have always had like a business idea on the back burner or you have literally no idea what you want to do next, or you're already an entrepreneur and you need, you know, some motivation, inspiration. It's really for anyone, anyone who has a business idea or is an entrepreneur in a consumer facing business. And I keep it light, you know, I keep it light. It's fun. Tons of stories of me falling flat on my face while building sprinkles. There's tons of pop culture references because sprinkles was very much a part of pop culture and the zeitgeist in the early aughts for sure and beyond. So having written a book and knowing the pain and suffering of writing a book, what made you say, oh yeah, let's do it again? (laughs) You know what? It's actually, I have to say it was less painful than the cookbook because the cookbook, oh my God, it used to drive me crazy, but all the recipe testing, right? You'd have the recipe down and then you'd have your recipe tester in Denver do it. And they're like, the cookies would fall flat because they're at altitude. So, you know, that was a whole nother can of worms. But it actually, the timing of the book was perfect for me. I think I'm always, I'm a go, go, go person like so many entrepreneurs are. And I rarely take time to reflect, think about what I've accomplished, maybe celebrate some wins. Wouldn't that be nice? As opposed to sort of personal floggings for when things go wrong. Yeah. And it coincided, the writing of my book coincided with the pandemic too. So I really had some time and some peace and there was, there were no social events on the calendar (laughs) and was able to really dig deep and think about what I built and what I'd accomplished and how I did it and why it was important. And it was almost like if no one buys this book, which I hope they do, but if no one buys this book, (laughs) everybody's buying this. It was therapy for me. I, I loved it. I loved the experience of it. Now the marketing of the book is a different story, but yes, you're right. I think to, to add on a book on top of the other responsibilities right now, we're very much in a growth phase with Pizzana, but during the pandemic, we weren't. So it was perfect timing, but I can't imagine if I were to add the writing of a book on top of everyday life in the typical world, busy world, that would have been incredibly hard. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what gave me the time and space to write mine too. I also wrote mine during the pandemic. So yeah, congratulations on your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I felt like it was so much work. And then like we just talked about before we started recording, you know, birthing it and marketing it was so much work that I feel like I needed to go to like a mental institution when I was You were going to say spa, but (laughs) mental institution is actually more apropos. I I can relate. (laughs) Oh my God. The day after, you know, I had to do my book launch remote. And so we had this big virtual event. And after that was over, I was like, I feel like I just had a baby and I am excited to check out for a second. (laughs) So I have a question. I'm curious if this happens, you know, as you become more successful and you decide to keep going and keep creating, I, I noticed that the amount of what I can handle taps out. And then I watch things fall through the cracks left and right. And I had to learn to be okay with that at this speed of moving. Whereas when I was starting out, nothing could fall through the cracks. And I was like very type A. And I'm curious how you manage that. Oh, you know, I was just listening to someone and I wish I could remember his name. He wrote a book 
It was about the second chapter of our lives and how there are, it's undeniable, but there's certain decline that happens, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm so resistant to that. And I think I just work twice as hard sometimes to make sure nothing's falling through the cracks. But it 100% does, Rebecca. I mean, when I tell you that my, my emails alone, I mean, so many of them these days, it's embarrassing, are like, just following up on this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm like, oh, oh my God. God. Okay. Sorry. 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 I'm that um, asshole now. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I think, and, and I also think with age comes perspective whereby that used to just absolutely, you know, take me down. Like, oh, I'm not, you know, doing enough. And now it's like, I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah. I'm doing the best that I can. And I think there's also so much, I believe in intention, right? Like, oh, I really meant to write you back. Like, I think that counts for something. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. I think, you know, there used to be a time where I thought, oh, I can start all the businesses. You know, I got this. I've got entrepreneurship down. Like, I'm going to do this. And we started a few businesses and a couple of them, not, not that successful. <laughs> in fact, not very successful at all. So I realized that so much is about, and I knew this was sprinkles. I was all in with sprinkles, right? If, if, I, if you're not going to focus on something 100%, just make an investment in it. Doesn't need to be your company. Buck doesn't need to end with you. And I think it took me a minute to figure that out. And yeah, we have limitations. It's hard to wrap our heads around sometimes, but I think that's part of maturity is, is owning up to it. I think it's so refreshing that you said that you did invest in things or you did try things that didn't work. It wasn't just a, you know, Candace's home runs one after the other. And I do like what you said. You don't, we don't have to do all businesses. We can, we can sit by, we can invest our time or our money, our thoughts into things without having to be the one that, that signed, that did it all. Yeah. And I think for me, my story is interesting in that I had success right away. And I didn't really learn about failure until later, but failure is where the growth comes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where I learned all my lessons. There's not much reflection that comes with success. You just kind of figure, ah, I'm good at this. Let's, you know, keep on going. But with the failure comes the growth and the learnings. And, And I think, you know, we live in a society that really does not allow for failure. And I get on my soapbox sometimes just within my family, I'm like, we got to normalize failure. I'll ask my kids, I say, what did you fail at today? Like, what did you, what did you risk? How did you move outside of your comfort zone? Even if you weren't good at it, like, and what did you learn from that? And I have one of my sons is quite a perfectionist and he, he has a hard time with it. The other one can just like, you know, fall off his bike and get back on and laugh at himself. But I think we could go a long way as a society if we started to normalize failure as being just, a lesson, you know, and it's, it's about how you, how you get back up from it, how resilient you are. And, and that, that's what makes a good entrepreneur at the end of the day. I agree. I have a whole chapter about failure in my book and it's just like, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn, you know, failure is that learning opportunity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's scary. It's scary for people. I mean, it's scary for me. It's scary for my kids. It's, we don't like it. It hurts. Totally. So where can everyone buy the book? And when? Absolutely everywhere. All the things, obviously on Amazon, but I, of course, like to encourage people to support their independent and local bookstore, which Barnes and Noble counts as that. And my book will be released November 8th. 
and it will also be, you know, Kindle and Audible and all the things. It's called Sweet Success. And I do hope that you will check it out. I think it would make a great holiday gift for any sort of aspiring entrepreneur in your life, even, even you know, a kid, someone in high school. I love that. So my last two questions for you are, what would we be surprised to know about you? I think people would be surprised to know that I almost didn't pursue baking because I thought it was anti-feminist. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wait, you I, thought it was... Anti-feminist. Okay. 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 So I went to a very progressive college and, you know, coming out of that, I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to go get a job in the man's world. I was one of the few women at my investment bank. And I was like, you know, doing all the things. And then people really eschewed the, the domestic arts. Like that wasn't cool. And that was old fashioned. That was archaic. That was what we were. And now we were something new as women. But I think ultimately the woman who helped me know that it was okay was Martha Stewart, right? Here she was doing all the DIY and all the domestic arts and being completely unapologetic about it and making it big business. So yeah. So I think that's, that might be one thing people would, would raise their eyebrows. I love it. You turn anti-feminism into a, an empire. So take that. <laughs> My last question is, what is one piece of advice you'd like to pass on that you've either learned the hard way or someone gave to you that was actually like, oh man, that was actually good advice for once. Mm -hmm. I still have PTSD from the time that I was on a panel. It was the women's conference back when Maria Shriver was first lady of California. And she organized this women's conference every year. It was really prestigious. It was really exciting for me to be included on a panel at the event. And, you know, I can't even remember who all was on the panel. I, I do remember Danica Patrick was one of the panelists. And we'd had our panel and we told our stories and everyone was clapping. And then they opened it up to Q&A. And, you know, a few people asked their questions and another woman gets up and she starts kind of going on and using this, some sort of jargon that I didn't really understand. And I figured, well, I'm here on this panel with all these other successful women. This question clearly isn't for me. And I kind of started to tune out. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even know, understand what she's saying anyway. And sure enough, the question oh. was for me. It was for me. Oh. And there were like 200 eyeballs staring at me. And I had no idea what she'd said. But because I felt like I had to fit into this idea of who everyone thought I was, which was a thought leader or a business leader or... <laughs> I. I should have just said, could you clarify? I'm so sorry. I didn't really understand. Can you ask it a different way? I should have just said, I'm so sorry. I spaced out. I should have done anything but what I did, which was to bumble through an answer that was just so off base because I hadn't heard the question. I just think that it's human to make mistakes and nobody thinks less of you if you don't know or if you messed up. and. I felt like I had to be in this position that people saw me in, which was a leader and someone who quote unquote knows everything. By the way, I'm sure nobody thought I knew everything. I don't know why I thought <laughs> I needed to know everything, but there's something really vulnerable and human in, in admitting that you don't know. And frankly, that's most of the entrepreneurial journey anyway, is like recognizing you don't know something and then just figuring it out. I love that. I have to work really hard on panels when someone goes on and on. I zone out and then I'm like, oh, oh, they wait. They asked me a question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to know I'm not alone. By You're the way, that's alone. like, 
Yeah. Okay, good. It really happens when you're on a panel with someone who loves hearing themselves talk and they'll go on far too long. And then I'm just like, oh, I'm not here for this. I can't do it. And then I start daydreaming. There needs to be panel etiquette. Right? Share the stage, everybody. There needs to be panel etiquette. Yeah, that's right. Or else (laughs) there needs to be someone there with a timer. (laughs) (laughs) Candice, I love talking to you. This was so incredible. I can't thank you enough. And I'm so excited for your book to come out. So if you're listening wherever books are sold, support a woman who knows and lives the pain of publishing a book. Buy it just for that reason alone, everybody. Let me tell you. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Yes. And if you're in LA, you have to go eat at Pizzana because it is a life-changing pizza experience. We're going together next time. I'm not going to let you sit at the bar alone. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithms. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again, and you will hear from me next week.